Friends, would you open with me in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 11? We're going to read several paragraphs in Hebrews 11, and we're going to begin in verse 5. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 5. Hear now God's word. By faith Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death, and he was not found because God had taken him. Now before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God, and without faith it is impossible to please him, for whoever would, for whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith." By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out of the place and to receive as as an inheritance. And he went out, not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has its foundations, whose designer and builder is God. By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore, from one man and him as good as dead were born descendants, as many as the stars of the heaven and as as innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking about that land from which they had gone out, they would have had an opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I love the description of Sarah who demonstrated this faith that she considered you faithful. You are faithful. You always do what you promise. You're going to let your word go forth this morning by the power of your Holy Spirit and you're not going to receive it back void. It's going to do its work in us and through us. It's going to change us. And I plead with you that it would give us these kinds of eyes of faith. We ask all this in confidence in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, friends, I know that we recently celebrated Halloween, which means that everybody has Reese's peanut butter cups on their minds, right? Because that's one of the greatest candies ever invented. And as I was eating all my kids' Reese's and thinking about Reese's, I was reminded about those um, commercials from my childhood. I don't know if you've ever heard those, but the commercial that has the tagline, there's no wrong way to eat a Reese's. Anybody remember those? Two people? Cool. Um, Anyway, it's just a goofy commercial. You've got a football player. He likes to eat his Reese's by throwing it and catching it and eating it. You've got a barber. He likes to shave off the top of his Reese's and eat it. You've got a vampire who likes to suck out the peanut butter, and then he eats his Reese's. So just really goofy commercials, and the tagline at the end of every one was, there's no wrong way to eat a Reese's, however you want to do it. It's totally fine. Well, I was thinking about those commercials. I punched it into a search engine because I wanted to see some of them. And up popped this gem of a newspaper article entitled, Florida Woman Learns There Is Actually a Wrong Way to Eat a Reese's. (laughs) So I saw that and I said, man, I got to read this thing. Well, apparently she was clocked at going over 100 miles per hour on the interstate with nine kilos of cocaine in her possession, eating a Reese's. And as only you could do in Florida, she learned there's a wrong way to eat a Reese's. Well, 
I cannot believe I'm about to make this connection. There's a wrong way to eat a Reese's. There's also a wrong way to read Hebrews chapter 11. There's a wrong way to do this thing. Not everything goes. There's a right way and a wrong way. And for the first portion of our time together, I want to expose two very common, very wrong ways to handle the text of Hebrews chapter 11. And then in the last portion that we have together, we're going to just expound on some of the fruits of faith that come from reading Hebrews chapter 11 rightly. So let's talk about two wrong readings of this text. The first one is the legalist reading. It's legalism. It's our old friend legalism. And by this, we don't just mean a legalist who says, uh, if I do what's right, I will get into heaven. But the legalist who believes that our goodness raises our standing before God. So even if I'm a believer and I'm a legalist, I would say that at times and seasons where things are going well, where I'm reading my Bible and spending time with God, where I'm putting my fair share in the offering plate, these are times when God is pleased with me and he's happy with me and I sense that he's answering my prayers. But in seasons where I don't do these things, I I feel a distance and a coolness from God. There's a legalist way to read Hebrews chapter 11 that seems like it's going to fit perfectly because in Hebrews 11, of course, you have these star examples of faith and the legalist loves a list. You read the list to be the list. You work on this list so that you can turn around and be weighed by this list. And the message you would draw from this wrong reading is... If you are good like the Abrahams and the Sarahs of the world, then God will be well pleased with you. He'll be happy with you like he was happy with these saints of old. Well, there's a couple of massive problems with reading Hebrews 11 this way. And one of them is not even Abraham and Sarah were as good as the Abrahams and the Sarahs of the world. Hebrews 11 is giving us a narrow look at these people, the look at the lens of their faith. But when we flip back to Genesis, we realize that there's so much more to these stories. Abraham, in his story, he squirms and he doubts and he lies. Sarah, when she hears this promise from God, her response is to laugh in God's face. Noah, after he builds the ark, he steps off the thing, he plants a vineyard, he gets roaring drunk, and then he curses one of his sons. We don't have any dirt on Enoch, but either Romans 3 and Psalm 14 and Isaiah 53 are true or they're not true, and that is all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, even a person like Enoch. So the first problem with the legalist reading and trying to be as good as Abraham and Sarah is that they don't even measure up to the description we get in Hebrews chapter 11 about them. But here's a second and important problem with that kind of reading of Hebrews 11, and that is we're going to learn in the very next chapter, chapter 12, verse 2, that Jesus is himself the author and perfecter of our faith. Everything we have as a believer is a gift from God that we give back in response to him. And so if the legalist is looking for grounds of boasting, as in my faith, I'm demonstrating this faith that is going to make God pleased with me, we learn right away that even that faith is a gift from God himself and it is no grounds at all for our boasting in it. 
God gives us faith like we give our kids money to buy us Christmas gifts, right? I mean, I give my kid $5, I take them to Belk's, I show them the tie aisle, I tell them I don't do pastels, and I say, knock yourself out. You, you didn't buy your dad a tie, your dad bought himself a tie that he doesn't like and he's never going to wear. In the same way, we don't muster this faith that we then weigh against what's happening in Hebrews chapter 11. Even that faith itself is a gift from God that begins and ends in Jesus. You don't get to take chapter 11 as a legalist and find pride in it because of the ways you perceive yourself measuring up to these saints, or you can't find despair in it for the ways you fall short. It can't be read in those directions. That's one very prevalent, very wrong reading of Hebrews 11. And the second is the license reading of Hebrews 11. By license, we mean those who believe that since we have this gift of faith, since God receives us and accepts us based on his grace and his gift alone, obedience then is inconsequential. I'm saved by grace. Why obedience? If this is not going to affect my standing before God, if he looks at me and he sees the righteousness of Christ, then it must not matter what I do in this life. Every single believer has to answer this question from Hebrews chapter 11. If the Enochs of the world and the Enron executives who all trust in Jesus are going to end up in the same place, Why am I sacrificing to be the former and not enjoying being the latter? Why this hard work? I mean, is there a way in the Christian life to have my cake and to eat it too? Is there a way for Abraham to move into a tent in Canaan, but keep his summer vacation home back in the land of Ur? Can I do both of these things together? When we talk and think about the license reading, I want to put two people, kind of lump them together in the same camp, two groups of people who I know for a fact would never go camping with each other, but for the sake of time, we're just going to throw them together. And the one is the very overt reading, the license reading that says that my salvation is my fire insurance, right? If I know John three sixteen, I believe that, I affirm that, I'm baptized in that, I walk an aisle in that, I can walk out and do whatever I want. And when I stand before the pearly gates, I know the answer to the question, why should I let you in? It's not based on works. It's based on Jesus's finished, crucified work on the cross. And therefore I'm in, I get in because I know the right answer. That's one camp that's very overt. The other camp is very subtle and it's very hard to see. And that is to take every passage of scripture and to run it through the lens of justification by faith. I won't disparage that doctrine. It is an incredibly important and central doctrine. But if you read everything through the lens of that doctrine, then you would approach a passage like what we just read and say, Noah was good. Noah obeyed God. I'll never be that way or obey God in the same way that Noah did. That's why Jesus died on the cross for my sins. And now I'm not expected to be like Noah. The details of obedient faith in chapter 11, they don't matter. They don't matter for the person who reads with license, either person who takes that license to do whatever they want or the person who reads everything through the lens of justification by faith. If you do either of those things, the details here don't matter because now you're talking about obedience and what that looks like and that doesn't have anything to do with me who's been saved by grace through faith. There's a bunch of problems with that reading from Hebrews chapter 11. The first of which is the book of James and the Pauline corpus 
and everything that Jesus ever said and the prophets and so on and so forth because the gospel in scripture has always been a grace that galvanizes. It's a grace that unites us with God that changes absolutely in everything in us. In the same way that our faith is a gift, so is our obedience. We've been changed to the core and we are different people because of our union with Christ. Verse 15 says that salvation is like sojourning. You're walking away from home, away from the homeland you once knew, and on to a better one. You can always turn around and go back to where you came from, but you cannot walk in both directions at the same time. There are also those in the license camp who are worried that we're putting people on a pedestal, right? If you uh, outline and spend time in Hebrews 11, you're ending up putting these saints up who we don't want to emulate them. It's not right for us to emulate another person. And so we kind of discourage that reading of Hebrews 11. But we can safely assume that the reason the writer spent all the time to outline the details of their obedience is that he expects us to emulate something from here. And in case we miss that, in case we pass chapter 11 and we say we don't want to put people on a pedestal, he comes back to it in chapter 13, verse 7, when he says, remember your leaders, consider the outcome of their way of life, and imitate their faith. If you're not ready for an Old Testament saint, Find somebody in your church. If you're not ready to read and emulate Noah, that's too much too soon. Go talk to Neil Burkhalter, an elder in this church. If you're not ready for Joseph or Jacob right now, go find Jeff Payne. Find a leader in this church today for whom the details of obedient faith matter and emulate that person. Do you see these two wrong readings coming out of this? I know that we've heard messages, devotions, thoughts that go in both of those directions, legalism or license. The one seeks to judge itself by the list and the other one simply ignores this list. Well, over and against both of those readings, there is a reading of Hebrews chapter 11 that inspires us to set our eyes on Jesus and to join these brothers and sisters on this road towards the celestial city. There's a way to have the eyes of faith on Jesus and to emulate the people that Jesus puts in our life to have these eyes of faith. And the way that we know that we're reading Hebrews 11 rightly is we'll begin to see good fruit that comes out of our faith. There are three descriptions of faith that come out of this passage that will become true of us as we read this rightly and as Jesus who gives us this faith will change us more and more. I want to close with these three fruits of our faith. Number one, faith is banking. Faith is banking. Faith is not merely intellectual assent or creedal confirmation, but it is banking one's life on the promise of God. We've been reciting the Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 14, every single service to underscore this point. This is what we say every single week. But the principal acts of saving faith are accepting, receiving, and resting upon Christ alone. We don't say the principal act of saving faith is agreeing with Christ alone because it is so much more than that. The faith that God gives us is a faith that turns around and accepts, it receives, and it rests itself on God. Saving faith 
is putting all your eschatological eggs in the Trinitarian basket of union with God. In other words, faith paints the world that obedience walks in. Faith sets its eyes on the course that obedience runs. Faith is our script and obedience is our speaking lines. You don't have any armchair faithful in our text. Faith is the stuff of boat building and baby making. It is banking one's life and time and energy and family on the promise of God himself. Faith is this banking. Number two, the other fruit that will come out of this right reading is that faith is longing. It's not legalism. It's not license. It is longing. You don't read Hebrews chapter 11 to convince your mind. You've already been presented these dense gospel truths in the first 10 chapters. You're not reading this to convince your mind, but to whet your appetite. You want to test this nagging thought in the back of every single one of our minds that says, I know this is true, but is it worth it? I know these things might be true, but is it worth it for me? If believing in God is not just agreeing with my mind, but banking my life with God, I want to know, can Jesus hold the weight of my hope? We ask that question, and out marches Abel, Enoch, Noah, Abraham, Sarah, and they say with one voice to us, I would not have written my story. I never, ever in a million years would have written my story the way God has written it. But Jesus is faithful. He really does hold the weight of our hope. Verse 13, they all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on this earth. Faith is the daily, hourly, minute by minute fight to tread lightly in this world so that we can long to walk heavy in the next Faith makes us hungry. It makes us long for the life to come, which brings us to the last descriptor of faith read rightly in Hebrews 11, and that is a faith that desires. Faith desires. When I read that faith is the costly banking of my life on God, when I hear that faith is this delayed gratification that I won't receive things that have been promised to me in this life, when our passage uses words and phrases like stranger, exile, afar, not knowing where he was going, when I see faith move out of a house with four walls on choice land in Ur, surrounded by friends and family, and settle in nomadic tents in hostile Canaan, the seriousness of faith and what I am being called to, it rocks me to my core. In the gospel, I'm being invited to step out of everything I know, everything I've ever trusted in, everything I've ever believed in, everything that I've served, everything that promised that it would give me life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And I'm now being invited to step into the presence of God and to carry a conviction of things that I can't even see. Faith is costly. Faith is grave, but it is not without reward. I don't know if you've thought about this, but the desire to be rewarded, which sounds like it's something we shouldn't think much about, 
is actually a fundamental aspect of our faith. Look at verse 6. And without faith, it's impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. It's impossible to please God without being pleased with God. You understand that? It's impossible to please God without being pleased with God. In other words, God gives us a faith that turns around and it desires him. It wants him. It's in love with him. It wants to be with him. Faith is something that desires. Look at verse 14. Imitate and enjoy this faith that God gives you. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking about the land from which they had gone out, they would have had an opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. You've got Abraham and Sarah, Isaac and Jacob, living in tents in Canaan. They're not jumping on the trend of micro homes. They're not doing this because they want to show up at Life Group and say, look at all the ways that I'm suffering for Jesus. The reason they do this is verse 10. When you wake up morning after morning in a tent, it has this kind of effect on you. You find yourself looking forward to a city whose designer and builder is God. You've got a man named Noah. He hits the ripe old age of 600, the age in every man's life, where you begin to stroke your 401k and piddle about your yard and survey the fiefdom that you've created. And he, by faith, begins building an ark in the middle of nowhere before mocking neighbors. Noah is not doing this for a badge of self-righteousness in this life, but verse 7, a desire to become an heir of righteousness that comes by faith in the life to come. Lastly, you have a man named Enoch who mortifies his body, not for suffering's sake, but for desire's sake. He denies this body in this life because he wants to indulge a new body in the life that is to come. Let's pray together. Lord, I pray that you would grant us this blood-bought, this God-given, this spirit-animated faith, a faith that banks, a faith that longs, a faith that desires. I pray that you would give us a faith that looks to the horizon to see this city whose designer and builder is God. Give us this kind of faith, we plead, and perfect it in us in Jesus' name. Amen.